Hey, welcome to Element. If you are new, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. Uh, you'll get some the verses we cover on this side, a place to take notes, and then some questions to reflect on what we talk about today right there. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. Click on More and Then Events in Uversion. We will come up by GPS in your smartphone, and you will get the sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, and all that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? And this is Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 48. This is what it says. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who trust you no matter the circumstance we find ourselves in our lives. That we would understand what blessing truly means and that you lead us into blessed lives because of what you have done. And the salvation that you have for us is the greatest blessing we could ever receive. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are doing this series, taking us right up to Christmas, called the Songs of Christmas. It's actually going to dovetail right into Christmas Eve that we're calling the Sounds of Christmas. And these are some songs and poems and words that were spoken about events that led to what we call the first Christmas, even though it was probably not on December 25th. We don't actually know the exact day of Jesus' birth. We don't even actually know the exact year. Like, it wasn't zero. Could have been as far as 6 B.C., as, as far up as 6 A.D., the Julian calendar, if you know what that is. Didn't really have exact ways when it came about, but whatever. What we do know is that if God wanted us to know the exact day, He would have told us, but He doesn't. And so what you see in the narratives of all these things that actually surround the birth, you see Jesus was wrapped in swaddling clothes. He was placed in a manger. The angels speak about the glory of God. All these things that God is doing. Because what that does is it speaks about the nature of who God is. God is meek and He is humble, but He is true and real. And the exact date of His birth really has no significance whatsoever, which probably is why God chose not to mention it. The wonderful point of Jesus' birth is He comes into the world to atone for our sins, all that separated us from God and one another. He dies on the cross. He rises from the grave. He's alive today. And those are the things that we celebrate on Christmas and on Easter. And so these ideas are supposed to be cause for celebration every single day, not just one day a year. In these birth songs of Jesus we've covered, you see this guy named Zechariah. Zechariah was John the Baptizer's father. God made a promise to Zechariah, hey, I'm going to give you a kid. He's going to herald the way for the Messiah. And, and Zechariah sings this great song when he can speak again because God made him mute for a few months. When he can sing and speak again, he has this great song about God's provision and God's goodness. There is a song we're not covering by a guy named Simeon. Simeon is this old guy who hung out at the temple and God said, you will not die till you get to see the Messiah. And so when Mary and Joseph have the baby, they take him to dedicate him at the temple and Simeon sees him and he sings, well, it's more like a prayer so I call it the alluded to song. You could sing it if you wanted to. But he says these songs over Jesus, and it's, and it's also really kind of beautiful. Uh, last week we looked at how the angel showed up, and God heralds the birth of his son, and glory to God in the highest to a bunch of shepherds that nobody, nobody really wanted around, and yet God shows up anyway to these people, to the lost and the hopeless, and says, rescue and peace is coming to you from God. Uh, next week, we're going to look at Isaiah, this Old Testament prophet, and the things that he prophesied in song about Jesus coming. But today, we're going to look at Mary's song, Jesus' mom. Uh, some people call this the first Christmas song ever. I think Isaiah's was, but really 
before that, you had God's song from Genesis chapter 3, where mankind sins and runs away, and God promises rescue and redemption in himself. So that's probably the first one. Mary's song is a good one, because it makes God's words in the scriptures personal to us. And too often, people, when they think about God, they think about him as some far-off concept or some list of rules of moralities and self-denial. But what you see in the Bible is that God has always pursued relationship with people. Micah 6.8 in the Old Testament says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And people read that verse, and they focus on this do justice. They think it's like a set of morality and rules, or they see this love kindness. Oh, I have to be merciful, and kind, and generous. But the focus of the verse is really to walk humbly with God. God wants us to walk with Him in relationship, because when we do, we will love kindness, and we will love justice, and we will love the right things because we love him. God is a father. He is a king, but he's also a companion and a friend. So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. As I said, uh, Mary is Jesus' birth mother, in case you didn't know that from the story. Uh, She gets pregnant with Jesus while still a virgin, which is what we call a miracle, by the way. It was a promise made by God, so how we would know that he was coming to rescue in that coming Messiah. She will go to her relative Elizabeth's house. Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptizer at this time. The Holy Spirit comes upon Elizabeth, and then in her womb, this child leaps for joy. Some of your mom, moms know about what that feels like when a child leaps in your womb. and like, i got to go to the bathroom. got to go, right? It's, it's that kind of thing, but it leaps for joy, and Elizabeth kind of peers in and gets an insight into who Mary is covering. She says some great words over this, and so Mary, after all of this, speaks these words of this song. We call this song the Magnificent, and this is what she says, Luke 146 to 55, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercies for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever." Now, I have spoken about the Magnificent a couple different times. I'm going to take a little different track at it today to go back to the idea of the understanding of all God's promises coming true in these songs. Well, what I think we got to notice, first off in Mary's song, is that God becomes very personal in the midst of it. And she will use this word that is called blessed. A lot of times today we, we have this word, and it kind of means something different than what I think we think it means today. Like in Christian circles, when you hear the word blessed and you see it on TV, blessed means you get to be rich. Like, not in my circles, but, you know, on the TV. People, oh, blessed, you're going to be rich. Okay. In some circles, like in the South, you'll hear, like, bless his heart. And what that means is, you're an idiot. Right? <laughs> That's what it means. Sometimes we use it to mean things are going pretty well for us. You know, you got that parking spot in front of the Costco at Christmas, hashtag blessed. Or we say things like, uh, God bless you, which is almost like the Christian Hunger Games. May the odds be ever in your favor. And when they say things like, uh, we use the word when people sneeze. I, 
It's just, it's, just, it's just crazy. A lot of us say it, but so many people are clueless as to what it actually means and what being blessed is really all about. And if I made up like a top ten list of Christian words that Christians know what they think they, think they know, but they're actually confused about it, that'd be one of them. That's going to be that sermon series one day. Things that Christians are confused about, but they don't know they're confused about. The phrase, blessed and highly favored, comes first from the angel Gabriel as he talks to Mary about this baby and says, you're pregnant with Jesus. When she goes to see Elizabeth, Elizabeth will use that word three times with her. In Luke 1.42, blessed are you among women, blessed is the fruit of your womb. Verse 45, blessed is she who believed. And so when Mary starts to compose her song and speaks these words, she calls herself blessed. It's a reflection of what other people are saying about her. She talks about the generations that are going to come will most likely remember her in a certain way. But you have to look at what blessing means and what it doesn't mean. Because I think if, if we looked at it correctly, it might help us to understand certain things in our lives. And you have to ask, if you were in the culture of Mary's hometown or in that day, would you have thought of her as blessed? If you put yourself in Mary's shoes, would you have seen yourself as blessed? And I don't think you would. And here's why. First off, her reputation is completely ruined because she is a teenage peasant girl who is pregnant. It's probably junior high to high school age. Most commentators think she's somewhere between 12 and 14 years old. Now, you could be married at that time in that culture, but she wasn't. She was engaged, and the baby wasn't her fiancé's. In all likelihood, Joseph, the person she is pledged to be married to, lived at a distance, is making a home for her to come and live in, and that's how people knew it wasn't his, because he wasn't there when she conceived, and it takes two people to conceive if he didn't know They'll teach that in high school. Mary is considered loose and someone who betrays her fiancé. And if you read through some of the, the Christmas story, you see that Joseph didn't even learn about the conception until a little bit later when God reveals what's actually going on. And so Mary, writing this at this time, could be in a place where the man that she loves, the one that's supposed to be her husband, is not even sure about what's going on inside of her and what's going on with them. I've shown you before how this stigma of Jesus being born in this way followed him the rest of his life. Like when the Pharisees were irritated at him and wanted to bring him down a notch, they would say, at least we know who our father is. That's a nice way of calling him a... Now, I can't... You don't want to say it out loud in church, right? So it's not on the recording, but that's exactly what it was. It's not a nice term, but... Okay. You can read lips. That's amazing. <laughs> it's like... Uh, your mom is loose, and your dad is that dummy who believed her. There are other writings from this time that say, oh, Mary must have got pregnant from a traveling Roman soldier. All these stuff. Here's something to think about, right? God did that to her. God did that to her. God could have done it another way if he chose to. He could have had the angel show up and sing to the entire town, oh, what's in Mary? That's from me. But he doesn't do that. Would you consider that situation highly blessed? Probably not. She is completely poor as well. Uh, when Mary and Joseph go and offer the sacrifice at the dedication of Jesus at the temple, they can't afford the lamb that the law requires. What they offer is two turtle doves. Two turtle doves is the exception in the law for the poorest of the poor. I mean, so that's what she's like. Think about the difficulty of having a child in this day where most scholars agree, again, that she, the oldest she could be is probably 17, but she's more likely 12 to 14 years of age. And the angel shows up and says, you're going to have a baby. It's going to be God. Figure it out. What? I mean, it sounds ridiculous, right? Because it is. 
And if you're looking at Mary from the externals, you wouldn't call her blessed. She's not getting that parking spot close to the mall of life, right? It's, it's not going that great. But you look at what she says. She says, I am blessed. Why does she say that? Because there's a couple things based upon her words that we need to see. The first thing is that she knew and she trusted the goodness of God and his overarching personal love for her. You've got to notice how she speaks about God in the first person. She says, God, my Savior, in verse 46, he has looked upon me, verse 48. I was lowly, and God exalted me. Verse 52, I was hungry, God feeds me. Verse 53, her circumstances are what they are, so she's not necessarily rejoicing in what God has given to her at the moment, but who God actually is to her and all of his promises that he is bringing to fruition. She says, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. God has done great things. Holy is his name, meaning God is doing these things for his name. And because God is doing these things for his glory, for his name, in that she gets to be blessed. So what great things has God done? Well, it's not necessarily her circumstances. It is God's promise of salvation. I'm going to come, I'm going to rescue, I'm going to redeem. That's what it is. She probably doesn't understand even all of that in her particular circumstance. That God has become a man to bear her sin, to reconcile her to God, to die on a cross for her, to rise from the grave, to live in her eternally. She probably doesn't understand all of that. But this is what God is coming to do, and she's trusting God's promises. And do you know that in the Bible there's really only one thing that is called the power of God? Like, there are many things that are done by God's power, but only one thing is actually called the power of God, and that's the gospel. That is, Jesus coming to rescue us, coming, being born as a man, living a perfect life, giving his righteousness to us, dying on the cross, rising from the grave. That's the power of God. Now, God does many things by his power in that. But so if you look in Psalm chapter 8, it will tell you that God created like all that we know with his finger. Like if you just take the Milky Way galaxy, like some people say if you were to shrink the Milky Way down into something the size of North America, our our solar system would be like a coffee cup in that. Then the earth would be like a speck of dust in the middle of that coffee cup. And then we'd be like an atom inside the piece of dust or what, I don't know. But, right, all that God makes with his finger, with his finger, just, and not his arm, not just, just his finger. God makes all the creation that way. And yet he calls the gospel the power of God. In Romans 1, 16 and 1 Corinthians 1 in the book of Hebrews, Mary says, He has shown, shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. Mary says the gospel is the power of the strength of God's arm. Now, some people today, they will walk around and they will feel shameful or guilty about certain things. They think, God can't forgive me. Or if they understand God's forgiveness, they will th say things like, oh, God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. And that is total garbage. This is why the Bible says you can't trust your own heart. Our feelings lead us astray so often. God, if, if Christ's death and resurrection is good enough for God to forgive us, why isn't it good enough for us? Why? What we have to understand is God put less power into speaking the worlds into existence than he did into our own salvation. That is the beauty and the power of the gospel. In verse 49, she says, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. J.D. Greer likes to point out that the gospel brings together all these attributes of holy and mighty and mercy. 
Take that word holy. That's another word that Christians think what it means, but they get it all confused all the time. Some people think it just means ultra-religious and weird. That's not what it means. Holy means something to set apart for the purpose of God, that for which it was originally created and designed for. Holy comes from this word for wholeness. That is, God created us to be a certain thing. God's going to return us to the power of the gospel to be whole again. We get very used to sin in our world from TVs and movies and books and magazines. We see abuse and violence and betrayal and lies and immorality. But you have to understand, God never gets used to it. Sin, what it does, is makes us like a rotting corpse, like the walking dead. <sighs> like I don't understand if you've ever seen the walking dead, why they can't hear the zombie coming. It's always, <sighs> it's like, think. You know. I don't get it. Anyway, but imagine like, like a wedding night, right? You're married, you go to kiss your, your new spouse, and all of a sudden there's a zombie with the flesh falling off. That's what we are like with our sin in the presence of God. We, we are not whole. We are ruined. And holy is the idea. When we have a relationship with God to have that, we need to be saved and redeemed and restored and made whole from sin and ourselves. And that's the power of the gospel as God restores us to wholeness. Then you have this word called mercy. That means that God looks on us in our present zombie-like condition, and he has compassion on us because he's not going to leave us that way. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus says it in comparison to how a mother loves a child compared to how God loves us. The way a mother loves a child actually looks like hate because of how strong God loves us as, as his people. God's not going to watch us perish. Uh, Greer writes this. He says, Because he is holy, he had to do something about our sin, because sin can't stand in his presence. Because he is merciful, he wanted to do something. Because he is mighty, he was able to do something. And so you have that word mighty. And in Psalm 8, when David talks about this finger of God creating all the world, he kind of takes a step back. And in Psalm 8, verse 4, he says, What is man that you are mindful of him? And so he takes me, he's like, And who am I? You created all this, and yet you think about me? And you care about me? This is what Mary seems to hone in on in her song. That God loves us in a way that makes us come undone with thankfulness and humility. There are people today in the world that get this idea of blessing all wrong and they focus on stuff and cover it. But God's blessing of salvation and grace is supposed to make all of those other blessings insignificant by comparison. Mary reminds us that God himself is our great reward. So then Mary comes back, she starts to talk about God's promises. Verse 54, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever. This baby in her womb is fulfilling all of God's promises that God is faithful to His promises. When the angel shows up to Mary, God has been silent in Israel for 400 years. That doesn't mean that God ever forgot about them. God is still working and moving to bring things to His glory and our good like He always has. And now that Jesus is coming, it's this greater blessing than any of them ever dreamed of, more than we can comprehend. There's actually this children's book by Sally Lloyd-Jones. It's called this, Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing. And this is what she says. When God promises to bless you, he is saying, I'm going to make you into everything I've ever meant for you to be. It means that God is taking every day and every single thing that happens in it good or bad, to make you stronger, to mend whatever is broken inside, to change you into the person you were always meant to be. It's beautiful words. And really, if you were to go back and ask why, it's like, it's not why did God use a bad situation. It's like, why did God create the bad situation and then work through it in doing these things with Mary and Joseph? And I think part of it is allowing them to be a people who get to taste the cross. 
because part of the blessing that God does in us is growing us into the knowledge of who He is in the midst of our hardships, of who Jesus is as He brings us through different things. Why do we experience hardships? Because God did not save the world through Jesus' exaltation, but through humiliation and crucifixion. And in the same way, God said He will bring salvation to the world, not through primarily making the church the greatest thing in the world, but through people getting to see us as His people walk through different circumstances in life as we trust Him through all of those, as we lift up His Son and not ourselves. And many times in various countries, even today, that means the death of those who love Him. See, being blessed never meant living a life without suffering or enduring hard people or bad situations. It means having the presence in the midst of all these situations to see and understand the unalterable promises of God in those situations. It is trusting that God has committed himself to us in love for our rescue and that he will bring everything to fruition. And so don't misunderstand, though. I'm not saying that God brings every instance of suffering into your life. I think we're pretty good at doing that all on our own a lot of the times. You eat too much and your tummy hurts. You don't be like, God, why would you do this to me? God didn't make you eat too much. Or today, some teenage girls still do get pregnant, right? God, why would you do this to me? <laughs> it wasn't God. If your boyfriend told you it was, you got bigger problems. Uh, the reality is that there will be times when God sends hardships into our lives, though, as a way of blessing other people helping us to grow through them, and blessing others how they see us walk through those hard times so they can begin to understand the same grace that we know. When you hit hard times, it doesn't mean you're not blessed. Sometimes it means you're actually more blessed than you can actually imagine. And you have to remember, what is Mary's basis for blessing? Her basis for blessing is God himself. In her song, there's not a lot about her. I mean, there's, there's a couple lines, but it's actually about who God is and what God is doing and what God has done. All those promises. Mary points to nothing in the song of her own personal worthiness. I know there are some religious traditions today that like to say that Mary was sinless. But Mary herself says, God is my Savior. That's what she says. She knows she needed a Savior. She understands her guilt before God, her emptiness, her hunger, her need of mercy and God's strength. She needs a Savior. And so she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. It's not that Mary was amazing. It's that Jesus was and is amazing. So her soul magnifies him, not herself. And if anyone tries to idolize Mary, they totally miss the point of her song and her words and her life. And in the end, we're a people who are only going to be really be able to magnify one thing on a constant basis. And if we're going to magnify one thing, it should always be the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are a people who have been unworthy, but God calls us worthy because of what His Son did for us. We deserve death, and He gives us life. Jesus takes our sin, gives us life. We are the poor in spirit, and God gives us His riches. We are the ones who mourn because we see our sin, and God gives us forgiveness. We are the ones who are weak, and when we understand the weakness, we stop living in our weakness and start to trust Him and live in His strength. God reminds us, Isaiah 43, verse 11, I am the Lord. (laughs) And besides me, there is no Savior. I'm going to keep going. I don't know why. One writer said this, God is the only Savior, and he will not share that glory with anyone else, not even his mom. And I like that. I like that. Okay, it's, John Piper always says this thing. He says, when God is glorified, when we glorify him, his people live in joy. We're meant to live in joy, which is part of our great blessing. So there are some questions I think we need to ask in the midst of this, right? Do you live like Mary? 
Like, are you one that understands no matter the situation, no matter where you are, we are a people who are blessed and highly favored by God because he has spoken his salvation to us. Do we understand that? Do we begin to live in that? that? No matter our circumstances, that God has loved us and blessed us because that's the promise of the song. That's what Mary understands. See, too, too often we think that the, those who are most blessed in our world today are people who have all the good stuff. But this is what she says, verse 51. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, and the rich he has sent away empty. Because there's nothing wrong with dreams or riches or even positions in power. The problem is when we magnify them and live in those things as our source of identity and delight. At that point, we are glorifying in them and not in God himself. And sometimes people like to only look at the successes in their lives or the things around them and say, oh, that's the blessing of God. You have, you have all these perfect things happening. I think failure can also be a great blessing as well. I have all kinds of places in my life where I myself have failed. And yet in those places, many times, God is leading and guiding and growing me into so many different things. Sometimes people will come up to me at Element. And they will say, not people who go here typically, but other people from outside, and they will say, hey, how many people are coming to Element now? And it's always a weird question. I, I, I don't like it at all. I try to dodge it. Sometimes I can't, so sometimes I'll even throw out a number. Uh, but in, in either who they are, sometimes I'll get this. Oh, you know, well, uh, that's great, or I thought you'd be bigger by now. And, and either way, I'm like, why? Because I feel like no matter where we are, it's like the Goldilocks zone. Because whatever God does for Element is just right. It is just right. I have seen too many pastors get a big head because things are going well and they fall. I've seen too many pastors being in places where they don't think things are going well and they fail and they fall because they forget who called them and who is ultimately doing all the work anyway. It's not me. It is God himself that does the work. Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And I take that to mean that we don't glory in our personal successes or whatever we do. We rejoice first that God has saved us. That's what we rejoice in. And so it's good to ask ourselves, what are we magnifying with our lives? What do we count as our blessings? Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And those two statements, they're connected because what you magnify in, you will rejoice in. So what has to be true in your life for you to rejoice? What has to be true? Maybe you are unmoved during a church service, but today you'll go home and your favorite team is playing football and you're like on the couch and then they score and you jump up and you're like, yeah, and you scatter all the things that end in Edo's all over the room. You're like, oh, this is the greatest thing in the world because you're magnifying in this thing, so you're taking joy in that. I think sometimes when we walk around and we don't have this joy in who God is, it's because we are magnifying in something else. And I will tell you, anything that is not and is less than God is always going to fail. It is like Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, it all becomes meaningless. So what are we magnifying in? See, I, I think that when we magnify Jesus, it's like one writer says, joy should function something like a smoke alarm in your life, meaning when it's in Jesus, it's going off all the time. Because we are magnifying in who he is. God's presence and his promises are with, with us, the rescue and salvation we have received. I think like Mary, that's what we need, regardless of our external circumstances, regardless of what's going on around us. And that's God's gift to us, the reminder of his presence, of the gospel. Just like it's a gift to Mary, it's a gift to us. And I would say if you want a Christmas gift, that's a Christmas gift. God promises to rescue and bring us back to help us to see who he is in all situations, in all circumstances. God says, I will bring you to me because 
I love you. That is a gift. And I think when we understand that gift, it puts every other gift into perspective because everything is going to flow from God's first gift of rescuing us. And this is one of the reasons every week you take you to this place of communion because it's a reminder of God's good gift to rescue us, the reminder of his presence. It is the reminder of the power of God to rescue us from our zombie-like state to return us to wholeness and relationship with him again. So you take that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us and you break it and you dip it in the wine or the grape juice to remind us of his blood that was shed for you and me so that we get to be a people who are redeemed and made whole and get to live in the great blessings of who God is and what he has done because God is gracious and good. Uh, The band, I think, are they going to come up? Oh, there you are. It's a long trek. (laughs) So the band's going to come up, or the... Most of them, anyway. Uh, and I invite you to take communion. There'll be some deacons in the back. If you need prayer, uh, they would love to pray with you. I mean, maybe you're in a place today where you are magnifying in all kinds of things that are not Christ himself, and you would like somebody to pray with you about that. Maybe you're going through a hardship in your life, and that hardship is something that you are focusing upon and that you are magnifying with your life, and it's kind of overtaking all that you are. They would love to pray with you. Because we want to be a people who return to understand we magnify Jesus first in all things. Because it's so easy to get so off track with all the things that kind of bombard us in our life. But understanding like Mary in the midst of her circumstance that God is our Savior. That we rejoice in Him. That is the understanding of what God has done to rescue us and it resets our focus in all things. And so I would encourage you, if you need prayer, they'd love to pray with you. Uh, there's offering boxes next to every single door, and we give because God gave so much to us, giving us part of our worship. We don't pass a plate. It's meant to be a response to what God is doing in our hearts and lives. Uh, there's some snacks outside. Grab something to eat. Maybe meet some other people. Take some sermon notes and ask some questions to one another. Like, wh- what are you magnifying in? I mean, not over cookies. That'd be weird. Hey, so what are you magnifying in? It might be odd. But invite someone out to lunch or dinner or something this week and, and talk through some of those things. We are a people that meant to walk next to one another so that we could remind one another constantly of God's goodness to us, of the power of the gospel to rescue and save, so that we would begin to live out in our lives the great good gifts that God has given us because he is our rescuer, he is our savior, and he is good. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would remind us of your grace and your goodness because so constantly we need reminders We need reminders of who you are because we forget as we start to magnify things that are not you. And many times and places you will come in and you will bring a hardship into our lives that we are unsure of and don't really know about. And yet we'll use those places and times to break us and remold us and stitch us back together, but you sweetly break us. And yes, God, there are times when we make stupid decisions and do dumb things. And in the midst of that brokenness, you come as well by the power of the gospel to rescue and save and bring us back to yourself. So this morning, I ask that you would take us to a place of surrender before you in such a way that we would remember you as our great God who has rescued us all the promise that you have brought to fruition so we would live out our lives in recognition of the fulfillment of what you have done. And we would honor you by not just the things that we say, but also the things that we do. 
and that we'd be a people who also live out kind of the song that Mary speaks about. That our heart and souls and lives would magnify in God our Savior because you have done great things to rescue us. Thank you for bringing us in, calling us your children and bringing us home and bringing us restoration. Teach us to love others as you have first loved us. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.